Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I'm going to talk about adaptation today. I've had a lot of the need to adapt over the last couple weeks. Oh, man. All right. So for those who weren't around for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about change. Uh, those two podcasts are up, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, they did come out okay uh, with our new microphone and stuff. So you can download those. Uh, tonight I'm just going to put some finishing touches on on the subject, and I think it's important to talk about um, resilience and adaptation. It's kind of one of my favorite pairings of Western psychology and Buddhist psychology when it comes to Anicca. So I'll kind of lay that out tonight. I think it's important. I think it can be helpful uh, to make the connection between the two. Uh, two frameworks between West and East, you might say. I wanted to start by uh, last week at the end of the session, someone had mentioned that uh, I think it was a parent that had often said the only constant is change. And uh, I'm not sure if I made the comment last week or in some other talk, but for the amount of times I get online and Google things about the Dharma, like whenever you type in change, 99% of the time, it's going to send you to Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher that actually said the only thing that is constant is change. So when you, if you're ever going to do a presentation on a Nietzsche, you will, you'll be weeding through some Greek philosophy prior to reaching the Buddha's talks on change. Uh, and it's interesting because, as I think I had said last week, it is clear if you read enough philosophy and you start looking at mystical spiritual traditions and you look into the dharma it's inevitable that there's going to be some treaty on impermanence some treaty on this quality of human life that we call impermanence and i find it interesting that whether it's a physicist or a poet or a buddhist a nietzsche continues to come up as a topic that i mean you might say we have to confront it or at least know something about it in order for wisdom to arise because it's so broadly sweeping in its impact of what it is to be a human being. And uh, the last time I had done a talk on impermanence, I just, I randomly looked up like quotes on change to see. And sure enough, you've got philosophers and all kinds of different people talking about change and the power of change and how we need to manage change. And, uh, the two that caught my eye was, one was from Stephen Hawking's, and Stephen Hawking's had a little teaching where he said, the measure of intelligence of human beings is basically their ability to change. Ability to change. How we manage, initiate, and work with change is really the foundation of human intelligence, which I thought was kind of interesting. And on top of that, in some neuroscience research, the happiness researchers, which that must be a fun thing to do, researching happiness. Um, the happiness researchers say that our ability to adapt to change and our ability to cultivate heart-mind qualities in response to change, being resilient, essentially, 
is absolutely correlative to happiness, that human beings who report higher experiences or more contented experiences in their life are often those who are really good with adapting to change and really have cultivated or they have a natural disposition of resilience. And so <laughs> even though it seems like adaptation and resilience are heart-mind qualities that are absolutely necessary for us to feel contented to some degree in our life, it is equally amusing, as I said last week, that we keep ignoring change, we deny change, we push against change, we resist change, even though we're swimming in it constantly, and you can't separate it from the human experience. I'm going to read a little poem here. I guess you call it a poem. I think it's a poem. Uh, this is one of my favorite poems related to the topic of, of change. And this is from um, Matilda Magdeburg. It's a, I think, 1200s Christian mystic. And uh, I just love this little poem. It's called, A Fish Cannot Drown in Water. A fish cannot drown in water. A bird does not fall in air. In the fire of creation, God doesn't vanish. The fire brightens. Each creature God made must live in its own true nature. How could I resist my nature that lives for oneness with God? A fish cannot drown in water. A bird does not fall in air. In the fire of creation, God doesn't vanish. The fire burns brighter. Each creature God made must live in its own true nature. How could I resist my nature that lives for oneness with God? Part of the reason I like the poem is because we are swimming in a Nietzsche. And the truth of a Nietzsche, the truth of impermanence, is already there. We are living in that truth. The waking up is being mindful to it, accepting it, learning to initiate it, and oftentimes transcending the suffering that goes along with it. So in the Dharma, we're waking up to our true nature, which is in part anicca, impermanence. We have no choice. We have no choice. One of the things about anicca I think is important, and I, I know this, this is definitely true for me as a meditator, it's easy to look at change, like superficial change, I guess I would say, in our lives and bring some acceptance to the change and kind of think the work is done. Like we read the Dharma, we have Dharma talks, we have our practice and, you know, there's the three characteristics of existence and one of them is Anicca, one of them is impermanence. And, you know, we kind of nod our head and say, yeah, of course, I mean, change, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, I got that. And then we try to move on to a profounder wisdom, right? We kind of like, oh yeah, things change, the weather changes and we offer some acceptance and then we kind of put it aside and kind of look for something else that we can focus on. It's interesting though, because if we push it aside too soon, we miss some of the depth. We miss some of the subtlety and the wisdom that's embedded in the very presence of Anicca in our lives. Oftentimes, I don't know if this is strictly kind of a Western Buddhist phenomenon, or maybe it's with certain lineages, I don't know. But one of the things I notice is that when we talk about change in the Dharma, we oftentimes, we conclude that the wisdom comes from noticing that there's change, accepting that 
nothing is going to last. And in spite of that, living to the fullest, right? We know that sensual pleasures aren't going to last, and we acknowledge that, and then we try to indulge in as many of them as possible, knowing that they're going to change, knowing that they're dissatisfying. And actually, the Buddha encourages us to do something more than that. The Buddha isn't asking us to look at anicca and accept it and think of the acceptance as the enlightenment. What the Buddha is asking us to do is notice how much dukkha can arise from the fact of anicca and in spite of that, live differently, to change the way we live, to choose to live intentionally with wakefulness and compassion and love. Yes, acceptance is in there, but there's a deeper request to in the face of change, to in the face of impermanence, to live a life that is different, live a life that transcends the limits of impermanence, to search for something underneath that is lasting, which is the illumination, which is the enlightenment, which is the loving kindness at the end of the rainbow. So I'm going to encourage us to take Anicca as a very deep well and suggest that we keep returning to the well and keep exploring Anicca within ourselves to find deeper and deeper experiences of awakening and that we don't take it as, oh, I'm already done because I accepted that it hailed today and I didn't overreact. So now we're going to move on to some other wisdom, (laughs) some other wisdom. So I want to talk about how this works in the Dharma, like I said, to conclude the last uh, kind of thoughts I had from the last couple of weeks. Because of impermanence, here's one framework, because of impermanence, because of Anicca, human beings are sort of burdened with a couple obligations or duties. Because things are changing, we have to learn the skills to adapt to an ever-changing world. And we don't have to. (laughs) I certainly don't recommend going against that. But human beings, because things are changing all around us, because we are constantly changing, we have this burden of constantly having to learn, to grow, and to adapt to this phenomenon. The, The world is shifting under our feet. So we can turn a blind eye, certainly. That causes more dukkha. But really, the burden is to constantly learn, grow, and change in these circumstances, to learn how to respond to the Anicca in a way that creates a sense of contentment and ease rather than a way that causes suffering and harm for ourselves or for others. So that first burden of Anicca is that human beings have to constantly adapt. We have to be ardent and alert to moments of adaptation. And I'll go into this a little more in a moment, but that's the first one. The second one is that because change causes so much pain for us and change can be sudden and severe and be experienced as a significant loss, we have to build resilience. We have to learn to cultivate heart-mind qualities that allow us to bounce back when change happens so significantly that it derails us from our daily routines or derails us from feeling secure in our emotions in the ways that change becomes heartbreaking, when there's grief and loss, we need to be able to establish some tools. So from a Buddhist perspective, some heart-mind qualities that allow us to get through the types of change that really sting, that really hurt, that really get us down. So because of change, we have to learn to adapt and we have to learn to be resilient if we want to have some contentment in our lives. The more we resist 
learning to adapt. And the more we turn away from the need to cultivate a resilient heart and a resilient mind, the more the suffering increases. That's our second arrow phenomenon, of course. And so I wanted to read to you these two quotes. One I read last time in a conclusion about adaptation and resilience. And then I'm going to show you how they fit into our factors of awakening a little bit. Adaptation is the ability to adjust to new information. It's the ability to adjust to new information and new experiences. Learning is essentially adapting to a constantly changing environment. Through adaptation, we are able to adopt new behaviors that allow us to cope with change. That's adaptation. Adaptation is the beacon or the, I say burden because it feels like a burden, but it is the call that human hearts have to adapt and continually learn and grow as part of our life. Now, resilience, as most of you know, is the psychological quality that allows some people to be knocked down by the adversities of life and come back at least as strong as before. Rather than letting difficulties, traumatic events, or failure overcome them and drain resolve, highly resilient people find a way to change course, emotionally heal, and continue moving towards their goals. That's from a Psychology Today article. <laughs> adaptation and resilience. Now, adaptation is something we're doing all the time. Like, I'll give you an example of how I adapted this morning. I woke up and was thinking that it was still those spring sunny days. So I got up, was dressed in very light clothing because I thought it was going to be warm for some reason. And then I looked outside and it's pouring rain and I was going to take a walk. So I had to adapt. I had to go get my coat, my umbrella, had to put the lining back into my jacket, which I had taken out for some reason. And so I had to adapt. And there was a slight moment where I looked out at the rain and was like, oh, man, I don't want to go have to get all bundled up. Maybe I just won't go take my walk. And so there was a moment where adaptation was necessary. It caused some aversion because that's not what I was expecting. But then I just adapted. I got the coat. I got the rain, uh, the umbrella, got my shoes, and I went out and I, I walked in the rain. And so that's just an example of the constant adaptation. It could lead to suffering, but most of the time we're just constantly moving and shifting with the flow of reality. And to the degree we can, there can be a sense of ease. Now, resilience is more about healing. Resilience is more about after there is an episode of change in our lives. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a car breaks down. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's a death in the family. Resilience is that ability to take heavy-duty change and bounce back from it so it doesn't completely throw us into disarray. So resilience is, in a sense, a kind of adaptation. It's the ability, it's the heart-mind quality to be able to hang in there with the toughest of moments, right? That's what really leads to long-term happiness and well-being, that ability to bounce back in the face of change. And you really could, from one perspective, look at the Eightfold Path, look at our seven factors of awakening, look at the hindrances. You can look at this whole Buddhist model and actually say that all of these teachings are designed to help us manage Anicca, help to build stronger hearts, more accepting and loving minds, 
allow us to be equanimous to things that are going wrong in our lives. So when we look at the, the Dharma, it does make sense that the Buddha points out that anicca, impermanence, is one of the major sufferings. And that's followed by an Eightfold Path, which has all kinds of meditative tools that help us manage change. I wanted to read for you some of the... Um, some of the common skills and or heart-mind qualities that we usually see on lists under resilience in the West. And then I'm going to just remind us at how much these are also embedded in Buddhism. So here's some, and I'm, you've heard almost all of these. But in Western psychology, when we talk about resilience, we talk about things like this. People who are resilient often have strong social relationships, meaning they have support either in family or friends, loved ones, in any kind of group activity, could be, as we might call in Dharma, Sangha. People who are resilient tend to have people around them who are supportive emotionally and also practically. Another aspect is flexibility. Human beings that tend to bounce back from really hard things in life tend to be flexible. They have flexible hearts and flexible minds. Another one, being proactive versus reactive. That could be straight out of the Dharma, right? So many books on the Dharma say part of meditation teaches us to be responsive rather than reactive. So in the West, we say resilience is predicated on a heart-mind that can be proactive rather than reactive. Not totally brand new stuff. Another one that's often listed is the ability to communicate well with others. When we're in times of stress, when we hit those dark times of despair, when we're feeling disconnected and we're feeling alone, being able to communicate our needs, being able to ask for help, knowing where to go for support, that's what builds a resilient heart. So that's another quality is the ability to be able to communicate well with others. And the last couple, managing strong emotions. That again, right out of the Dharma, right? A big thing that meditation helps us with, managing strong emotions. What they mean by that in Western psychology is managing impulsivity. And this means the impulse to act without thinking things through. And I know I must be the only one in this room who is impulsive, <laughs> but I think someday I will stop being impulsive. But after 20 years of meditation, I still act without thinking and I still get myself into trouble. So I am definitely impulsive. But impulsivity, when managed, thinking before you act, being in touch with emotions to see the consequences, that is a common resilient quality. The last one that you're going to see often in lists about resilience in Western psych is going to be the ability to shift perception and perspective meaning taking a different point of view. Folks who are resilient in their lives can change their point of view. They can also adopt other people's points of view and get different perspectives on their situation. And, and you think about it, right? How many times have you felt trapped in a circumstance and you know part of the reason you're trapped is that you're clinging to a view, right? You're clinging to a perception or an interpretation of the circumstance. Oftentimes this ha this really happens in interpersonal relationships, right? Uh, someone wrongs us in a particular way 
and we adopt the view that this person's bad, this person's wrong, this person has to pay uh, in some way, and we cling to the view and we suffer, right? We suffer greatly because we're attached to some sense of grudginess towards another person and we can't get out of it. And then we get to this point where we forgive in a lot of cases. And then when we're in that forgiveness state, we realize, oh man, why was I mad at that person? I was just in a bad mood or I overreacted or I was trapped in something. So we know what it's like to be caught in a view, which is why that's such a big deal in the Dharma, trapped in perception. So folks who report higher levels of happiness also report being able to change their point of view, especially when their point of view is contributing to some pain and suffering. So those aren't new to you, right? Those heart-mind qualities are things that, yeah, you think, yeah, sure, that sounds like that would be, <laughs> that would, if I could do those things, sure, I'd be happier all the time. So when we look at those things, I want us to compare those to the Dharma. Sometimes you could literally look at the seven factors of awakening and just call them factors of resilience, right? Factors of resilience. Mindfulness, concentration, discernment, joy, tranquility, and energy or effort. These heart-mind qualities directly correlate to being adaptable in our lives and cultivating resilience. So we don't have to abandon the Dharma to become resilient. The Dharma teaches us to be resilient in the face of Anicca. So I'm just going to go down this list and let's remind ourselves these qualities and how they fit in. So the first one, having strong connection to others. Sangha, right? The Buddha so praised spiritual community as the foundation of practice. So if we look at the Eightfold Path and we look at the Dharma as a pathway to happiness, it makes total sense that the Buddha would invite us and encourage us to practice together, to support each other, to care about each other, to help each other. Because we're all happier in community when the community is kind, loving, and gracious, right? It's fun to be around other humans when we can get along and feel supported. So we have Sangha for that reason. Learning to participate in Sangha creates resilient hearts. It makes sense. Flexibility. I'm not the only person who works hard at trying to be equanimous to things that arise and pass away in my life. So equanimity is so huge in the Dharma. And what does equanimity teach us? Flexibility, right? Clinging is another way of saying, I am going to be inflexible, right? Clinging, grasping, reactivity, those are very stiff and contracted heart-mind qualities. When we're clinging and we don't let go, that is the definition of being inflexible. And since the Dharma is asking us to do this motion of letting go, leaning in, being more vulnerable, that is a form of flexibility. So practicing meditation, practicing equanimity, in the face of distress, creates a flexible heart and a flexible mind. We are developing flexibility with our heart-mind quality of equanimity. Being proactive versus reactive, huge in the Dharma. You all know that I love to talk about discernment, the investigation factor in the Dharma. And one of the reasons I really enjoy the topic is that the investigation factor encourages us to be proactive. What it's encouraging is us to be awake and aware to what is arising in the present moment, to anticipate where there might be suffering, to look deeply into the present moment and watch how we're reacting. 
we do that discerning part or that investigative part to learn how our reactions are contributing to our own suffering and the suffering and harm of others. So being proactive, saying to yourself, I'm going to show up with loving kindness today. I'm going to show up with patience, with mindfulness, equanimity. That's proactive. And what I love about the Dharma is even though it's present moment oriented, right? When we actually sit, we are in the present moment. We bring that present moment wisdom into the world and we do it in a proactive way. And it just so happens that being proactive decreases dukkha. And according to Western psych, it also increases resilience. So we spend a lot of our time doing investigation, engaging in this discerning practice so that we can encourage flexibility and gentle response to circumstance rather than clinging, grasping, and craving. Discernment allows us to let go. It allows us to see first that we have our hands so tightly wound around something that if we just let go of that hot coal, as the Buddha says, we might be able to get some relief. So proactive versus reactive, big in the Dharma. Being able to communicate well with others. Skillful speech. Skillful speech is so important that it's its own fold of the Eightfold Path. Of all the things, if the Buddha sat around sat around and was saying, okay, I've got to put eight things into my teachings. What would the top, top eight things to make my teachings be? Skillful speech was one of them. That's how important the Buddha saw our ability to communicate clearly with ourselves, our internal dialogue, and to be able to communicate to other people. And I don't know about you, but I have found in my life, the more I get in touch with who I am, the more I can use mindfulness to see my own reactivity, my own selfishness, my own clinging, my own pet peeves, the easier it is for me to be in relationship with other human beings. It allows me to like myself more, to love myself more, and then communicate that kind of love and acceptance to other people. So when we talk about being able to communicate with ourselves and others, part of that communication comes from this desire to be true and authentic to who we are as people. And that's big in the Dharma, right? Skillful speech revolves around honesty, truthfulness, non-harm in how we speak. And it also includes how we speak to ourselves. We always forget that. The skillful speech is how are you talking to yourself? Because you all know some of the worst things that are ever said to us are said in our own voice, right? We're the ones that are self-deprecating. We're the ones that say, oh my gosh, I suck at this. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. And sure, many of us have had other people tell us that as well, but there's a lot of that that's coming from our own inner dialogue. So that ability to communicate with others is alive and well in the Dharma and just so happens is a quality of resilience that leads to happiness or more happiness, I should say. The last ones I mentioned was impulsivity, thinking before we act. Isn't is that not the main <laughs> is that not the main result of uh, vipassana, right? Is that not the main result of meditation practice? The ability to watch as anger and hatred and delusion arise, and then giving yourself that little space to not take that out on someone else, right? Just giving us that gap to be able to hold our tongue or act out of kindness, even though we're feeling the emotion inside, we're feeling the anger, we're feeling the discontent, it does allow us to pause, make a different decision, and choose something more skillful. 
And we can think in terms of happiness that if we could do that more frequently, right? Just imagine if we could all pause before we're about to say that rude thing. We're about to criticize, we're about to harm, we're about to hurt. If everyone in the world could just master that one trait of being able to think before we speak, imagine how much kinder and how much more loving the universe would be if we could just get that one thing under our belt. So managing our impulse, right? Our impulse to condemn, our impulse to, to criticize and critique. If we could just get that, happiness would increase. And the last one, oh my gosh, this is being able to shift perspectives and points of view. If you've spent any time on social media, even if you didn't want to spend time on social media, if you, if you watch the news at all, you will see that human beings have a hard time shifting their perspective. Human beings are really, really, really attached to their point of view. Their point of view is right, and you must agree with them, and if you don't agree with them, then you're bad. The human heart does this constantly, <laughs> and it's really funny. I'll full transparency for myself. Uh, I, I see, I'm not going to absolve myself of all my sins, so to speak, but I used to be, compared to now, I used to be so attached to my point of view, to, to like the nth degree. It's like I would get a point of view, and you could not shake that, that point of view to like save my life. Like I was just like, I'm right, you're wrong, and that's the end of it. Now, it's 20 years ago, but still, there was a long period in my life where I was very angry, very bitter, and very right about things, and I liked being right. It was a thing I enjoyed, and not only did I really enjoy being right, I spent time practicing defending my rightness, right? So when people like had a different point of view, I wanted to have some quip or some way I could like disagree with them or convince them that I was right. So there was like, you know, a fun journey into arrogance and righteousness, of thinking that you have to be right all the time. <laughs> in my defense, I was in my early 20s and that's just, I was very angry and that's just how I was. But this ability to shift perspective, oh my gosh. So imagine a world where human beings can sit down with each other and really talk about each other's point of view in a kind, polite, caring, and interesting, ma interested manner. How much of what we see in politics, in the news, in the harm that's being done in the world would be eradicated if we could really sit with each other and adopt each other's points of view, limit that ego that's so attached to being right. If we could negotiate and compromise, wow, world peace, right? Like, oh my gosh, if we could just do that, things would be grand. And it just so happens that in the Western side of things and in the Dharma, we spend a lot of time trying to Watch how our perspective creates harm. Watch how our moods and emotions are bound with points of view. And to the degree we can let go and not be so attached to needing to be right all the time, we, we allow some space in there for a little lightness, right? A little compassion, a little love, a little acceptance. So it's really important when we think about the Dharma that we can see that our meditation practice is designed for us to depersonalize and let go of that clinging to view. That's a big thing in the Dharma. I wanted to offer one more framework here. There's an image that comes to mind. So as many folks who know me well know, I'm from Southern California originally. I've been up in the Pacific Northwest forever now, decades. But I was born and raised in Orange County, and I was born and raised in Laguna, down by the coast. And it's a surf culture down there. 
and a, very much a beach culture, both in everything from fashion to language to culture, like the beach and the, being near the beach down there in Southern California affects everything that goes on, goes on down there. It's a cultural thing. Uh, and to this day, I don't know what it is, but on occasion, I'll meet someone for the first time and they'll, they'll say like, oh, you're from Southern California. And I don't know what it is, like what my attitude or something is, but some people who are also from there for somehow recognize it in me still after all these years. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm a Southern California boy and I used to love, I never got into surfing. I have surfed, but it was too hard for me. And I just, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't commit to, to learning to surf. I just, I didn't have the energy or the dexterity for, for it. It was very hard, but all of my friends and people I knew would surf. And so I was always talking to them about their experiences of surfing and to this day, there's an image that I think is really helpful for the Dharma when we talk about Anicca. If you ever get a chance to really watch surfers surfing, the surfers are in the water, right? They are actually in the movement of the tide. They're sitting and standing on the surfboard, but between actually being on the board, they're in the water, right? There's this oneness with the environment in the same way that we are one with Anicca. The surfers are in the water, and what they spend most of their time doing is sitting on the board, looking at the horizon, watching the swells, right? They're watching the up and down, arising and passing of the water because they want that swell that's going to turn into a wave that's surfable. But that only happens every so often. So most of the time is actually spent sitting on the board, looking at the horizon and watching the swells. And when the swells come to the surfer, you'll notice that the surfer has two options. They can either paddle hard and go over the swell before it becomes a wave if they don't think it's gonna be surfable. So they have to paddle and exert energy to get over it so it doesn't fall on top of them. Or they back off and try to surf the wave. And there's this ebb and, ebb and flow that surfers have in making this decision of whether to go under the wave, over the wave, surf the wave. So what I really like about it in terms of Anicca is that this is how it is for us. We are swimming in impermanence. And every day, the swells arise and pass away. And we have to adapt. How we move, how we shape our experience is this dance that we do with this environment of impermanence. And that's an adaptation. That's the adaptation part. Now, the resilience part is that sometimes you catch the wave. And sometimes being adaptable leads to some pleasure in your life. And other times, it leaves you on your head. Sometimes you wipe out. Sometimes, no matter how you adapt to the incoming swell, it still clobbers you. That's the need for resilience. We have to bounce back, right? We can adapt day in and day out, but there's going to be times where we just fall off the board and we go head first into the water and the wave comes down on top of us and it spins us sideways. And then we have to figure out what to do now. How am I going to get back up? How am I going to go continue? Because there's going to be another swell. It doesn't stop. As you may, as you might have noticed, and I'm not the only one, of course, who says this either. Wouldn't it be great if we could just get off the ride for a year or two, perfect some skills, manage some things in our life, and then go back to it? If we could just get out of the water, hang out on the beach, and then come back to the surfing. But that's not how it works because we live in the water. We're always in a Nietzsche. We don't get to stop learning, growing, and changing figure it out, and then re-engage existence. We just don't. We're in it, and we're going to be adapting and learning and growing constantly. So on the horizon is always the swell, and we have the option of taking a Nietzsche 
and turning it into an opportunity for liberation, right? That's what the Buddha is really asking us to do, is to accept that impermanence is there, that at some point it's going to cause significant loss, and prepping, being proactive by practicing adapting, practicing being kind to ourselves and others, practicing being loving, accepting, flexible, equanimous, so that when we do try to get up on the board, if we take a header, we can get back up and there's less suffering. So change can be an opportunity for discontent or it can be an opportunity for liberation. In the Dharma, we're asked to lean into this, right? We're asked to lean into it, accept it, and use it for our own peace and well-being. That's really the take-home for Anicca. Seeing impermanence as an opportunity for kindness and growth, right? That's where we want to be with the Dharma. I think I'll pause there change hmm. <laughs> i'm gonna say one other thing just because it's popped into my head several times it doesn't fit in the dharma talk at all but it was a mindfulness moment i had this morning and i'm just gonna share it with you i, I was i like sharing moments where i kind of fail at mindfulness just so you know or you can see that like this happens frequently in my world uh, but I also like to share moments when I do catch myself because I hope that encourages you to know that with practice, you can also do this. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a dual example here. So this morning I was cooking breakfast and I had cut up an avocado and I had made avocado slices. And that was what's in front of me was the avocado on the cutting board. And then behind me on another counter was my toast or whatever I had that I was going to put it on. And I just, I don't know why I decided this. I decided to try to scoop the avocado with a knife and carry it across the kitchen to the toast. And as soon as I started doing it, mindfulness kicked in. I became very acutely aware of what I was doing. And part of my mind said, you're going to drop this on the floor. This is stupid. You can't win. You, you should probably just put it on the plate or like fix it or go get the bread and bring it here. Don't bring the avocado to the other side of the room. And so part of me, Mindfulness lit up. I was about to do something unskillful. I caught myself. And then I just did it anyway. Instead, instead of listening to what my mind was saying in the unskillful department. And so I grabbed the avocado on the knife. And sure enough, I turned. And as soon as I turned to go put it on the toast, it fell on the floor with a splat. And then I looked at it on the floor. Okay, here's the second part of the mindfulness. I looked at it on the floor. And immediately there was this aversion response arose and I caught it. I caught it really strongly in awareness. I felt the urge to criticize and be disappointed. And as soon as the energy arose and I caught it in mindfulness, I was able to say, I I'm not going there. Like I'm, I'm not, this is not going to be annoying. I'm just going to accept what happened and move on. And in that second, I felt aversion immediately transform into relaxation and I grabbed a paper towel and picked up the avocado. But the point I'm making is not about how to make avocado toast. The point is that sometimes your old habits will kick up and even as you're trying to do something skillful, the old habit is like, oh no, you just do the bad habit. Just do this other thing. You can, you, you've got this. It's fine. And your other part of yourself is, is going to win. So with mindfulness, we're always scanning the horizon, right? We're always asking ourselves to look out for the moment of dukkha and the moment of stress and the moment of these old habits so that we can intervene, so we can step inside that process and 
not do what I did. Listen to the voice of mindfulness and reason and build up the skillful, uh, the skillful action. And I noticed this in myself, like I'll, I'll be about to do something that I know is not skillful and I get lazy. There's a laziness in my heart and there's like a, a rushed energy of like, oh, I just want to get this done and I'm going to try and make it. And then I don't. And then I think, gosh, you know, I practice mindfulness. Mindfulness arises. It tells me what it is, it is skillful and I just ignore it and I still do the unskillful thing anyway. <laughs> so I know I'm not the only one that does that, but that's that's part of what we need to be looking for. We have to find opportunities where we see the impermanence, we see the impending suffering, and we try to uh, do something more skillful. So my wish for you is dukkha-free avocado toast and that you can catch mindfulness, catch yourself in the act when you are about to do something unskillful and you're you have the courage and the strength to follow through with the uh <laughs> with the skillful action anyway thanks for listening let's fall back into Semedo. thanks again for uh coming this evening and uh thanks for your care and support and we'll uh we'll be back next week i think maybe another couple weeks i'm hoping um like i said there's some stuff i want to bring into the room here and talk about meeting in person possibly and this kind of stuff and again i just don't feel well enough to like take it on um so i'm hoping as soon as I do feel that energy kind of more up at the 90 percentile, we'll definitely continue that conversation because I'd like to have some some meetings in person uh, as soon as I feel like I can be in front of people uh, and feel better. So that is on the horizon still. I haven't forgotten. I'm looking forward to being able to all hang out so we can have an actual group sit where we can feel energy in the same room. So uh, we can remain hopeful of that as we move in the next few weeks. So I'll keep you posted. Oh, let's plop. Let's plop for a few. Take a long, slow, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth and relax fully into body, really feeling the body, both filling it with awareness and feeling into that sensation of wakeful presence. How do you feel right now? Let's just honor and accept what arises in wakefulness in this moment. Let's thank ourselves for the practice of this evening. We could have spent our time doing anything, but we came together in practice. We came together in Sangha. Wednesday Wake Up exists because we all show up with open hearts and open minds, with the desire to be free from suffering, to be kind, to be loving, and to show up in the world as a positive energy for all beings. In the spirit of that, let's wish all beings 
freedom from suffering. Let's wish all beings to be free from harm, to be safe and secure. Let's wish the planet to be free from harm. Let's wish this home, this precious earth, to be free from its suffering. And let's conclude this evening with our traditional wish. In this moment, if you could wish anything, wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass. What might you wish for with each breath? wish you all health and safety and well-being see you next week thanks for showing up thanks for joining us here at wednesday wake up we honor the traditional buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge so this podcast will always be ad free and will never be behind a paywall this podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners if you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.